cara tava em cana, pena máxima. Só na cadeia matou quase 30. Quero ajudá-lo a capturar e matar o assassino de meu pai. Isso é coisa de um homem só? <risos> se é que se pode chamar aquilo de homem. Que eu estou vencido, enfraquecido pelo tempo. Serei sua. Faz seu filho em mim. Por você e por um filho seu, eu comeria da minha própria carne. Welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and joining me again for the first time in 2019, I'm embarrassed to say, is, uh, oh wait, what is your name again? Uh, I think I'm Court Psyops? You might be Court Psyops. I mean, that's what the computer screen says, but, you know, honestly, I've seen lies printed on my computer screen before. How are you doing, (laughs) sir? Little sleepy, little wired, little excited. (laughs) Those are all good things. (laughs) <laughs> well, okay, no, wait a minute. Not all of those are good things. Uh, combined together, let's hope they uh, let's hope they bring us the attention span and the concentration levels needed to to do this thing that we are about to do. <sighs> so, how have you been, sir? Pretty good. You know, changes in life are you know what they are, but uh, things kind of took a weird turn this late last year um, while you were away. <laughs> from me <laughs> and we didn't finish up the coffin joe which i would su- i would submit to you and all the gentle listeners at home that uh given the, the amount of delay that we had between this night i'll possess your corpse is that the second one and then this one embodiment of evil i think it actually kind of fits that we made the audience wait so long <laughs> before well, we did yeah, this one that's exactly kind of what i was going to pretend was my plan all along <laughs> Which is that what we were doing was essentially uh, putting a long break in between the first two and the final third one to mimic what had to happen in reality with the production of these particular films. Because we're artists and we want to mimic what we do with, uh, you know, we want to we mimic our hero here. <laughs> Ooh, I don't know if uh, Zita Coxio is a, the hero that you want to mimic, especially in this film. Uh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as you may have noticed, folks, it's been a little while since we talked about the second Coffin Joe film. And yes, it has been a while since uh, Court and I have recorded at all. Uh, the joys of being able to keep tabs on each other via podcast is fun, though. I've been, I've been enjoying listening to what you've been going on. i got to say, the full franchise fest of the Romero films... Uh, although I may disagree with some of your opinions on some of the films, uh, it was still a joy to, to listen to overall, I have to say. 
Oh, so me championing parts of Survival of the Dead you didn't agree with, I'm assuming, because everything else we had to say was just a love fest for all the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's just it. Um, I'm kind of a contrarian on in some areas of those later uh, zombie films of Romero's in a, in, in a strange way. For instance, um, everybody loves to shit on Diary. And uh, I remember, I, I guess I saw the film just before all the shitting began. And so... I found it to be a pretty inventive way to take what was, you know, in vogue in horror cinema at the time and turn it into a classic kind of Romero style. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think he accomplishes every, uh, you know, shock scene that he wants to accomplish. But I think that, you know, using the whole, you know, single camera narrator uh, conceit, uh, that was probably as good as as good as you were going to get from that kind of thing, and I, I kind of enjoyed it. And I thought the I thought once again Romero is a master at combining uh, bits of in place and uh, natural humor in uh, in his storytelling. And I think Diary of the Dead has some really amusing bits that do not break the fourth wall, even though <laughs> that kind of filmmaking is just rife with people fucking the fourth wall right in the ass. So. <laughs> oh, I said that out loud, didn't I? Anyway, but but Survival of the Dead, I, I don't I don't hate Survival of the Dead. I have to say, I think that there's a core of a good idea in in Survival. I think that there are more stumbles in it than um, than I'm comfortable with. I I've, I've been holding off for the past few years, going back and rewatching the movie uh, because I want to go back and give it as fresh an eye as I can because. I have to say that my 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 main stumbling block with the movie is is so small, but so irritating, and I know that that stumbling block, if I can get past it, then I won't have the trouble that I have with some other parts of the film. And that stumbling block is, why the fuck are all these people Irish? <laughs> um, you know, there are parts of uh, the Appalachia where I grew up where the uh, the Scottish moved into the mountain areas of like my like around my hometown and a lot yeah. of their accents have stuck around for generations because they they're like that they're isolationists almost and they just want to stay up in their own area and they only kind of come down for schooling that they have to but they still talk like that I mean I grew up around a community kind of similar to that only it was Scottish instead of Irish so I had no problem with that. Especially well, since it's an I, island. <laughs> yeah, I grew I grew up in the South, in, in, in you know Tennessee and Alabama, and I can tell you that you know I I understand because that is where you know that general <laughs> that's where our general Southern drawl comes from. But at the same time, it doesn't survive like that. <laughs> and when it was coupled with the fact that we had to have the Irish character as the the, the professor in Diary, it was almost as if. Romero had some point he was trying to make by having an Irish, you know, having this Irish character in one film and an entire enclave of Irish holdouts on an, you know, on an island off the coast. And it was just like, you know, what, what is that? I'm going to need a scorecard on this one. I'm going to need somebody to explain why this is happening because it's almost as if it felt as if he really wanted this thing to be set off the coast of England. Yeah, like maybe in uh, maybe a Welsh or uh, an Irish island that was like right. yeah, a midway point between the two in the channel or something. And it just I could not let that thing go 
while watching the film. So I've oh. put it, you know, I've, I put it in the, I put it on the back burner for years now to knowing that I need to go back to this because I knew at the time I was having, I was having trouble with what for a lot of people I'm sure was minor or if, you know, in, in a lot of cases completely non-existent. So I'm going to, I, I, my, my desire to go back to it is tempered with the fact that I haven't, I don't own a copy of the film. So, uh, well, we could probably make that happen. And if you want a Blu-ray of uh, diary of the dead, maybe we can make that happen too. Oh, I've got, I've got a blue of diary. That's how I picked it up initially. Just to, just to go ahead and damn it. Oh, no, actually, I, I just tried to get rid of mine. <laughs> See, I, I, don't, I don't hate. I mean, there's so much hate for Diary, and I just, I'm sorry. I think that I think the hate for it is outsized. It's as if they want um, Romero's form of that, you know, you know, form of that particular type of filmmaking to be, you know, different or better or or something. I, I don't know what it is, but it, it's like I'm sorry when it, the year it came out, that was. I mean, there was a period of like four years there where that was the vogue, and it's one of the better examples of it, in my opinion. It's like, no, it's not perfect, but then none of those films are perfect because it becomes very difficult to tell those kind of stories in that way. So, Well, and I just also think that there's a lot more that you can do with found footage than what was done in that film. Um and I think that's been proven with the Rex series, like even the oh, lower, yeah. lower Rex series that, um, you know, goes a little off base but still has that found footage feel to it works so much better i mean troll hunter is another excellent example of how to do found footage like that and make it work i think it's just i I don't know it just felt like and it's kind of something that happens with a lot of directors i think that's what i kind of talked about on the shows a lot too that um once you get to a certain age and you get certain like certain comfort and movie making becomes less about the angry filmmaker or like the guy really trying to say something there's like, like even De Palma suffered from this really bad where like the level of the filmmaking dropped because they just kind of got comfortable. Francis Ford Coppola suffered from that and just yes. retired and went and made wine. He's like, fuck it. It's not worth it anymore. <laughs> you know? De, Palma, De Palma's had some weird recovery periods though, because it's like I had almost written him off years ago and then De Palma made Femme Fatale and just slapped me upside my head and then um, I still haven't watched Passion but I understand Passion is another one of those where he's like suddenly in focus again but I haven't watched it yet but yeah 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 I, I know what you mean it's 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 difficult to maintain that as you get older and I think that's one of the reasons why somebody like Carpenter just felt you know he felt it ebbing away from him and it was just like Eh, you know, you can put it in you can put it in a lot of different ways for older filmmakers, which is you know, um, you know, my style of filmmaking and the subject matter I like to play with has you know it, it, the 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 industry has moved on from, or you know, I learned my skills in a different age, and I'm gonna have to, you know to to keep up, I'm gonna have to rely more and more on other people to help me with the you know either either the new technical aspects or with you know keeping a hand on the tiller so that I. I make films the way that the audiences want them to look now. And if you do that, I've seen directors do that and turn out pretty good work, but at the same time, it, it starts to not feel like their work. And um, I'm, I'm enough of a director geek as a film fan to really kind of prefer that the, that the, the, uh, the stamp of an, uh, of a, of a director's style kind of stay in place 
uh, across, across, I mean, not, not that they can't, you know, alter or change or do something, but I have seen directors who are very clearly aware that if they make films the way they did in their youth, then the audience is not going to be there for it. And it's, you know, it's not topic choice. It's not uh, storytelling. Uh, it's not storytelling choices. It's not uh, even cho- the choosing of scripts or ideas. It's uh, a way of presenting information visually that the the modern audience has moved on from. And these things go in cycles. You know, over the past ten to fifteen years, certain types of filmmaking that were the norm in the nineteen seventies have cycled back around. And this is, I think, the way things will be for the rest of cinema, which is there will be periods of time where there are enough filmmakers who admire certain older styles of film film storytelling that they will you know, just by virtue of wanting to do that, or in some cases it might even be unconscious, who knows, they will cycle back to an older way of doing things simply because they, pref- you know, they prefer that, that way of telling a particular tale. And so I th- I, I, in the end, I think it's all good because what you end up with is more colors to paint with over time in a way. You, you know, you, the, the palette broadens instead of shrinks and that's all well and good. And I think that the the problem that a lot of people would have with found footage, and it's one that I completely understood, which is you're you're painting with such a small palette. But of course, once again, being you know being placed under certain restrictions or placing yourself under certain restrictions can really make an artist blossom. You can find you know having those restrictions is like people who used to work in television having to find clever and intelligent ways to communicate certain ideas or to communicate certain. Uh, you know, concepts about what's being shown to people on screen, you have to be really creative. And it, and, it, and it, I think it sometimes brings out, well, not even sometimes, I think it very often brings out the the better part of a creative person to be put in a position to, res- to have to work under restrictions. I think a lot of cases, too, um, for a lot of these directors, a good example is like Lucio Fulci, like his heyday that everybody remembers and loves and the things that people love about Fulci and the main movies that everybody goes to, like to point out how amazing of a film director he was, he had a certain support staff, a certain crew of folks that worked with him yeah. through a certain period that is like his golden age or like his his main body of work that everyone loves and everyone really digs. And then when those people slowly started dropping off because they would go do other projects or he would I don't know, maybe drive them away because he was that kind of person (laughs) and they just couldn't stand him anymore, whatever the reason might have been. By the end of his career, when that kind of stuff was, when those folks weren't there anymore and he didn't have the talent that was doing the various parts that he could not do himself, it took away what everybody loved about Fulci films. And there's a lot of things that people kind of ignore and don't really pay attention to. But when you get to those later and later films, when it kind of dwindles away and he becomes more of like a TV director thing, you kind of see it, that progression of that obvious drop off. And a lot of the folks, it's they don't have the support staff or the, the group that is with them that help them create this thing. And it's like a foundation that a film director can count on. Yeah. And a lot of that, I think Carpenter had that a lot, too, because he was one of those guys where he would hire the same folks for everything where he would have like a, a stable of cinematographers. And I mean, a lot of his masterwork is Dean Cundey helping yeah. to make that happen with the the way that he would be able to produce the, the shots and stuff like that and make that stuff happen. And then when Dean Cundey went on to work with bigger and robust projects with more money and Carpenter lost him, then Carpenter would find another director of photography that 
was able to basically work with and do the same kind of thing. But I think when Carpenter dropped off of it, it's because he kind of ran out of stories he really wanted to tell anyway. He did everything he wanted to do. He hit all the, the remakes and all of that kind of stuff. And his most recent film, The Ward, it was was a serviceable, very fine horror film, but it didn't have all of the staff. It didn't have all of the things that he had had previously to make the film that special sauce that he would normally have. It was just a crew that he kind of threw together, and he was more or less a workman director that came on to do it more or less for fun, and that's it really shows. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, you're right. The Ward is a you know it's a perfectly serviceable film. It's 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 the classic it's the classic one time watch for for somebody like me because the things that uh, Carpenter would normally bring to a film and would bring to a film even as you know as marginal as you know Ghosts of Mars, which is a movie that I can rewatch, but it's still got enough. Carpenter isms. I that's a sloppy way to put it, but enough Carpenter isms within it. Besides being, you know, like his third version of the same story again, uh, <laughs> which which hey, I, which is something I like. I I, I don't mind. Uh, I don't mind that at all. When it's such a, a basic storyline that you can hang so many details on variations on a theme. Exactly. I mean, I love that kind of thing. But I, I, I he was doing kind of a similar thing with his two episodes of Masters of Horror, which I think are. The Masters of Horror episodes, I think, are the real way for him to have, you know, to go out. If you if you want to like point to hit the end point of his career, I think Pro Life and and Cigarette Burns are good choices to go. You know, he still had it when he had the material that he felt he needed to bring it to. And uh, yeah, the board, you're right. He feels like he's he's going. Ah, oh, this this can be fun, and I get to work with some young people. This could be cool. But you know, it's, there's there's not the um, the stamp of the the Carpenter stuff that we all grew to love so much. Yeah, and I think that really fits with what we're discussing here with Coffin Joe because it's been several years since Osika Morenz has been able to kind of make a film before he comes back with this. He's done some various other things here and there. Yeah. But he's coming back to a series that he has somewhat aged out of almost entirely, but he finds a way to use that to his advantage. The fact that the world has changed around the main character actually becomes really almost like a story plot point yeah. where it's like this time frame and what he was believing in has changed so much so that when we get into the actual film, we can actually see how all of the various things that you would normally be like, okay, well, obviously that way of thinking doesn't really work anymore and it can obviously be proven wrong and only some weird fanaticism would, 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 would follow this and believe it. And he just totally jumps in on that and just dives in head first and like just really wallows in it <laughs> yes he does well i tell you what um folks we're going to take a, a brief break here and then uh we will uh, actually sit down for a full discussion of embodiment of evil so uh hang on folks we'll be uh, right back did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds oh, necrophilia. Oh, oh, oh. it's a dead issue man don't don't push it cinema psyops is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject no one should have to watch this movie oh no one should have to watch this. no one should have to watch this movie surprisingly it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle i'm shocked I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. 
Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Embodiment of Evil, 2008 Brazilian horror film by our beloved Jose Mojica Marans. And hey, I think, by the way, I think I was listening to a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, the making of for Embodiment of Evil, and I think his name is actually pronounced Mojica. Mojica Marans? Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think there's a, it's, it's, some of them are kind of rolling it and, but some of them are hitting the J kind of hard and he's in the room. So clearly, you know, that's, he, he's not objecting to their pronunciation of his name. So, Hey, I, I, it's not like a Spanish thing where the J suddenly becomes a completely different letter that it shouldn't be. So <laughs> it could also, it, it could also be the way that they pronounce it. I mean, some people say Edward. And some people say Edward. Yeah, that's a good point too. <laughs> God, man, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna understand other languages. Why do people not just speak English and make my life easier? <sighs> <laughs> because English is not an easy language to speak. I've been doing it for the bulk of my life, and I still it's, mess it up. There, as soon as you, if you ever go to learn a different language, you quickly learn just how complicated English is. Oh my God, it's like. And, and here are the rules for French or Spanish. And there are like these two variations where those rules don't fit. And here's how it lines up with English, where here is the rule in English. And here are the 785 different ways in which that rule doesn't fit. Learn them now. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Well, and all the, all the romance and Latin languages, which, you know, Portuguese and, you know, Brazilian Portuguese, which is an extension of that, are, are based off of. They kind of follow enough of a similar pattern and some of the words overlap enough to where they can all kind of communicate with each other with a little difficulty. They can kind of figure it out, you know, like Spanish and Portuguese or even Italian and Spanish Portuguese. The languages are close enough to where you could kind of figure each other out and know what you're trying to talk about. Whereas like English can't have that with anything, not even with German and sometimes not even with accented uh dialect of other English speakers. <laughs> this is true. I'm, I'm always reminded um, when I was in high school, I got to uh, go for a couple of weeks to, to France and, and tour around France. And I had, I had been taking French for a while. So I was able to talk just enough French to be able to get around and learn where things are and, and get myself in trouble with alcohol. And so it was <laughs> <laughs> one of, but one of the uh, girls who was part of the, part of the trip, she was uh, fluent in Spanish because she had been taking Spanish lessons for like four years. But so, while while we're in while we're in France, she ended up being uh, able to communicate with 
a lot of French people in Spanish because most people there actually spoke enough Spanish that she was able to communicate more fluently with them in Spanish than in French or English. And it was one of those moments where you're just standing and you're going, wow, this is really weird. (laughs) This is really out of the ordinary. (laughs) Uh, But back to where we were. Embodiment of evil. Sorry. (laughs) This will be a tangent-filled show. You're just going to have to deal with it, folks. This is going to be an ebb and flow thing where we're going to lose track of the narrative and just just wing off into the stratosphere. So I apologize. Okay. Yes, this movie did come out in 2008, and it did take 40 years. I mean, let's remind people. At Midnight, I'll Take Your Soul, the first Coffin Joe film, uh, came out in 1963. Uh, this Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, the sequel, came out in 1967, and then this one came out <clears throat> 41 years later. Yeah. So, to, <laughs> wow. to, let's say a couple of things up front. One, yes, that is the longest time between a film and its continuation or its sequel, especially when you take into consideration that it is made by the same person, the creator of the initial two films. So, that in and of itself is kind of amazing. I learned uh, from the behind-the-scenes material from uh, Jose Mojico Madrin's son, who was his assistant on this film. They had tried five or six times over the years to get the money together, to get the production together, to make this movie, and it wasn't until 2007 or so that they were actually able to finally do it. So clearly, this is something he had in the hopper and was working on and refining for a very long time while trying to get the production off the ground. And uh, I have to say, I think that it shows in the finished product because in a lot of ways, this movie is polished to a high sheen. The, um, the craft is, I wouldn't say necessarily 40 years further along, uh, but it is, let's just say the storytelling is smoother the concepts better presented, and the filmmaking technique. I mean, he's working with some obviously talented people who are good at what they do. And this is, you know, in a lot of cases for his first two Coffin Joe films, I think we would both have to agree. Often he was working with people who were not, you know, were were doing this for the first time in some instances. Well, including himself. I mean, more or less, he was teaching himself as he was going. So that's just how it worked out. And I think what's really interesting about this film because he's had this long of a time to sort of develop the story the way that he wanted it, it's very concise. It moves right along. There's very few doldrum pauses. He has some moments where he does some speeches, but mostly it's just Coffin Joe chastising people. It's not him just doing a speech, you know, to the audience about everything that we've already seen him do. It feels like or at least the way that they put it together, it feels like not only as a filmmaker did he do this, but also as the character that I have little time left to finish this, this quest that I have started, both as a filmmaker and as the character. And so much of this has been taken away from me over time. I've lost 40 years to be able to do this. And now with this small window that I have left, I am going to make this happen. And it's just like that, that almost not necessarily desperation, but that single-minded drive of almost like in a Western where it's like, I'm going to do this, the, the old-time cowboy gunslingers, like, I'm going to do this one final good thing, and I'm going to get this done, and that will redeem me. And I feel like that's what this film is for him, where he's like, I'm going to make this final film. I'm going to make it the way that I've always intended it, that I've always suffered from censorship from, 
and no one's going to fuck with it this time and it's going to be mine and it's going to be my masterpiece and that's what it feels like both as a character that's what <laughs> what coffin joe feels like in this where he's just like i'm gonna do this and it's gonna be perfect and also as the filmmaker marins it feels like he's saying i'm going to do this and no one's going to mess it up this time uh, yeah, and you're right. It, it It's a very rare instance when it feels as if the writer-director of a piece is really almost inseparable from the character that the man is playing on screen. Yeah, it's almost a little disconcerting because <laughs> you watch him revel in some of the most vile acts that you know are fake, but some of them aren't that fake. There's some real shit going yeah. on in this. Where he's including he's including actual oh, yeah, yeah. body mods and let's just say mutilations, um, not all of them, but it's enough and it's sprinkled in there to where it has that almost like cannibal film effect where you see actual animals being murdered on screen in a cannibal film. So when you see people die, you equate it to being just as realistic or that's what they hope will trick your brain. And so he shows you like actual mouths being sewn shut with actual eyes already been sewn shut for a body mod crowd that's into that sort of thing. So that when you see someone get their ass cheeks sliced off and fed to them, your brain almost goes, wait, did that just happen? (laughs) Yeah. And some of the effects, well, some of the things that we know have to be effects because you're not going to do this to your actors. The the filmmaking technique of, you know, the classic, you know, show you the real thing, show you the weapon, show the weapon doing something that's definitely, you know, definitely what a weapon of that type would do, and then go back to the person's body you know, in an identical shot and then start inflicting damage on it in a horrendous, irreparable way. It's so well done because it, that's how you build those kinds of scenes for tension. And it and, and it works so well because it sells those effects incredibly well. And there's not a single instance in this movie where I felt like they were flubbing that. I think that they were very smart, not just in how they produce those effects when they're when these hideous scenes of violence are being done, but they were very smart in editing them as well. They knew what shots were needed and how to set them up. And it was, it's just, it's, it's, it can get under your skin. And I've seen this movie multiple times and I sometimes, I guess I push it away mentally. I forget that there's a, you know, a good 10 minutes of this film, you know, where, where I'm, I get squirmy. I get a little concerned about what I'm watching. I mean, he sews a woman up in a pig, but, you know. <laughs> the behind-the-scenes footage on that's amazing. The woman who did that, this this beautiful little woman who uh, was what they really actually did sew up inside the carcass of an actual pig. And then, ha- you know, then, you know, the, on screen we see her get cut out of it and come out of it. They, they, they talk to her uh, for a while and talk about she talks about how <clears throat> she was, you know, she was prepped and ready to do it and everything was fine. And then she gets she gets to the point where she's about to do it, and she she starts to have a – she doesn't say this, but it's clear that she's having a panic attack, and then she's able to calm herself down and then do it. And then she describes the whole process as really easy after that. Everything came really easy after just working her way through her, her claustrophobic panic attack about the situation. And then she's she's sitting there in a chair just talking about it, and you know, still covered in some of the in, in some of the the special effects fake blood, and she's got this smile on her face because it's like you know she you know she's she accomplished it, and she just had to overcome that panic attack. <laughs> it's just it's just this amazing moment where you're like, wow, you know, they <laughs> they wanted this, they yeah. they found someone who could do it. She had that you know, she had a rough moment, and then she overcame it, and boom, there it is on screen for all time. You know. 
Well, and that's the really interesting thing about this particular film is a lot of the stuff that Coffin Joe is doing, he is quite literally forcing people into his perspective mentally by yeah. forcing them to suffer whatever horrific fate that he can come up with. He's using like his sexual sadism to enlighten them to his philosophy. And that's the really most disturbing part of this film is it's effective and it works. And the reason is, is he's had 40 years. He's been locked in a jail cell to plan this. And it comes to fruition in the most frenzied, just insane sexual sadist way that he could possibly do. And yet he creates multiple versions of himself with all of his like little cult followers that he first has. And then also with the group of women that are brought to him and just like kidnapped and tortured and just basically turned to his perspective. And I don't want to say brainwashed, but just basically hollowed out and then rebuilt sort of like what the military does for its recruits. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. he yeah. just he just turns them into completely different people, although some of them were already there ahead of time. And we'll kind of get to that. But it's just such a bizarre way to see this happen because he just continues to torment and part of it is if you don't pass the test, then the test for everybody else is can they just sit by and let the horrific death that you were about to find, you know, for his vengeance or whatever it is that he's going to do? Like, can these other people stomach what's going to happen next? You know, and if they can, then clearly they are going to keep the continuity of his bloodline because they are like minds and he will create this super race of people or, or whatever it is that he's trying to do. And it's just this weird frenzy madness that just keeps building and becoming more and more intense to the point where you get to a woman sewn inside a pig. And of course, when she comes out of that, she's changed. It's like a birthing uh, yeah. symbolic thing. But, you know, not only that, but like you can see it in his eyes where when this starts to work, it's almost like he's starting to realize like his work is almost done. His life can end now. He's found what he needs. He just needs to make sure that he continues the continuity of his bloodline. And as long as he can have a child made from one of these women. It's going to work. But he's gotten multiple candidates that keep building up as he goes. It's an amazing accomplishment. And you know, when you think about the fact that when he made this, he was in his 70s, uh, late 60s, early 70s. Holy crap, because he's 83 now. And this was made 11, 12 years ago. So you think about th this is a man who has he, he's worked on this and thought about this not just this one particular film, but this character and this character's mindset and vision of the world and the vision of the future that he wants to try to bring into being. It's ast it's astonishing. This is we talked about this before in the previous two films. The uniqueness of this. I mean, yes, of course, Marins is pulling from you know Louis Bunnell and uh, you know dozens of other filmmakers in uh, st in style and tone. And in uh, trying to reach for certain physical effects, and th he's doing a lot of things. He's obviously a fan of other people's work, and he is incorporating those kinds of things into his art. But his vision, his singular vision, is so unlike anybody that has ever been able to accomplish this kind of a feat. Uh, these three films, if he'd done nothing else, and he did a lot of other stuff as well, but if he'd done nothing else but this bizarre 40-plus, you know, 45-year-long trilogy, it would be it'd be worth marking in the history books of cinema. And I, 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 guess I'm, I guess 
in, in, in some people's ears, I might be overpraising. I don't think that I am. I think that I am barely scratching the surface of what this man has brought to the cinema because I think that there are depths to these films, and this movie points it out very clearly. There are ways to examine the human condition and the ways in which we view ourselves as people, how we view the world around us, how we treat other people, and how we would like to see the world advance because of our presence in it, that I think lots of filmmakers play with those ideas, whether they realize it or not, but he is addressing it directly. It's front and center. He is not just making a piece of exploitation horror or a piece of entertainment. He is trying to drive home points, ideas, concepts, and make people react to them viscerally so that they stick. And this Coffin Joe is the most stripped down, basic Coffin Joe ever. He is a man on a mission. He's had 40 years of time stolen from him, and all he wants is to create this child, and that's it. I mean, that is his single vision and drive. You don't see him go off and try and interrogate people and do the thing that he normally does where he will play and toy around with people. He doesn't have the time for that anymore. The only time he goes to a bar is to hit on the barmaid because he kind of senses somewhat of a like mind, like where you can almost smell out that she has the same kind of nihilistic, empty drive to uh, spawn that he has, like a very stripped down humanity in this. And he drinks one mug of wine. You see him drink one mug of wine. He doesn't do any of this like blaspheme against people. He doesn't go out and just like try to provoke the villagers like he used to do. He's literally going yeah. in the shadows and just grabbing people and doing what he needs to do at an accelerated rate. And you feel like if he would have done this more on this night, I'll possess your corpse and stopped screwing around pretty much, you know, like like <laughs> like as he did, because even in this night, I'll possess your corpse. He was still indulging his sadistic desires more than what he probably needed to just because yeah. in his brain, that's how he's going to find the perfect woman to have his child. And he did accomplish that goal. It's just that it was taken from him in the way that it, in the manner that it was taken from him. But when he gets out of the prison and just goes for it, like that's the thing that is the most kind of like biggest turn away from the original two films is that he is just this man on a mission driving ahead, just going, going, going. And the film just takes that pace once he gets out and it doesn't let up. It's just constant. He does sidetrack yeah. a few things where people are somewhat in his way and screwing around with the neighborhood he's doing his work in. So he goes after them, but it's mostly other people looking to get revenge on him 40 years later for the things that he's done, including the ghosts that are haunting him, which is something we should definitely be talking about. Oh yeah. 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 Well, I tell you what, let's, um, let's back up for a second here and talk about how this, this whole thing is set in place. First of all, the film starts with our character, good old Zeta Kaisho in prison which, of course, will be an eye-opener to anyone who saw the previous film because we were pretty sure he was dead at the end of the previous film. But, of course, there are enough surrealistic touches in those first two movies and kind of, I mean, he had to back up and, and uh, alter the end of the first film to make the second one as well. And that's, of course, what he does here with this third movie as well. It's, it's as if, hmm, let me think, as if he thought each film was going to be the last time he could play with this character. <laughs> So well, and also the we talked about it before in the censorship board. Coffin Joe was not allowed to live the way that it was censored in the first movie. He had to die. Yeah. He had to have something go wrong, and then they had to back out and change it. 
And then the second film, he had to not only die, but he also had to renounce his ways and confess. And I'm sure that that has been stuck in Marin's craw for 40 years. And he had to do something massive to get back at everybody that made him censor his art. Oh, and he does in the way he sets this up and the flashback that we eventually get. Well, at the beginning of the film, very controversially, after having been locked away in this incredibly grimy prison <laughs> for uh, decades, for 40 years, uh, after having been locked away, um, he's he's going to be let out. Uh, you know, that they, they kept him locked up for 40 years and now they have to let him out. Nobody's happy about this, especially not the prison warden. No, they get like literally every guard that has ever worked there in like on their Sunday best, you know, <laughs> close. <laughs> they all just like get together and they're like, we're not. We're, OK, everybody get your weapons. Everybody get prepared. And they're just like and you feel like it's overkill when they first do it. But then you realize, oh, wait, this is Coffin Joe. He he basically slaughtered an entire village. The last movie we saw. <laughs> well, not only that, we later find out through dialogue that while in prison for those four decades, he killed 28 more people. Yeah, it was like it was like 28 to 30 more folks, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, no, 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 no. This motherfucker dangerous. <laughs> I mean, this, this guy will kill you if, and not blink. He's already in prison. He's not going anywhere and he doesn't care. And it feels almost as though the amount of time that he was in there was like the maximum sentence that that country's laws would allow. And that's why they had to release him. They're not happy about it. They just can't no. keep him any longer and they can't keep trying him for the other murders. So they have to let him out. It's it's amazing. So he's allowed out and immediately meets back up with his old um, loyal manservant who is ma amazingly still alive, Bruno, uh, although, God, he's old now. <laughs> it's the same actor, too. That's what's really amazing, that he got that it's same incredible. guy back. And he looks he looks exactly like him, just severely aged. It's perfect. Like, he even hunches the same and continues to do the same movements that have to hurt a man of that age. I know, I know. It's incredible that he was able to get this guy. But uh, it turns out that, of course... Uh, being, uh, you know, a kind of Charlie Manson kind of person while in prison, he has a cult that is built up around him. And so Bruno introduces him to uh, the 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 main four fanatics that he's going to um, have at his beck and call, who are essentially going to kind of be his lieutenants as things progress throughout this film. Two women and two guys. I like to refer and to he, them as the spooky kids, like from Marilyn Manson and the spooky kids. But only in this <laughs> case, it's Coffin Joe and the spooky kids, because. He's, he's too old yeah, yeah. to be hauling all these people around himself, and it's good that he has followers to do it for him. He was going to need it. And the idea of a cult having built up around Coffin Joe is so logical. And folding it into this story of making it the way in which he's able to accomplish a lot of the things that he wants to do is, of course, perfect. It, it makes absolute logical sense, and it's, it's really well done. So they yeah. immediately start uh, kidnapping women so he can renew his quest for the continuation of his blood, as we were talking about, as usual. Uh, and um, <laughs> the, the process is kind of amazing. I, I, that we were talking earlier about the special effects. Well, his first victim, um, this, uh, this woman, uh, Hilda, uh, she's a eugenicist who, who actually has a lot of sympathy for Coffin Joe's outlook on life. And so they kidnap her. And there was a part of me at the time, even rewatching it this time where I'm like, you know, if you're just going to talk to her, she'd probably just come along with you. But because <laughs> she seems to believe in less hideous form, a lot of what Coffin Joe espouses. Yeah. I mean, she almost seems to be saying some of the same shit just in a less uh, fanatical sense right before she even gets kidnapped. I mean, like that's kind of like her dialogue 
where she's literally like, you know, I really wish I could find the perfect man. And by the perfect man, I mean, genetically speaking, he's just set up to be who I need him to be for which I can spawn and have children. And then all of a sudden they're kidnapping her like, oh, we need you. You're going to be the perfect woman for the perfect man. And she's like, I was just talking about this. Oh, oh OK, I guess I'll go along. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah. she doesn't even put up much of a fight when they kidnap her, really. No, I know. It's, it's as if, I don't know, maybe she was just waiting for it. It's like, well, he's out of prison now. This is eventually going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like it's like one of those things where you're just like, I'm just going to walk over here all alone. Sure hope nobody kidnaps me for Coffin Joe now that he's out of jail. Hope no cultists are around while I'm standing here under this street lamp. Yeah. <laughs> Looking all of my gorgeous best. Don't come kidnap me for Coffin Joe. <laughs> Well, now I have a, they. So this is the this is the lady. They strap her nude to a table, uh, inject her with some drugs. She starts having hallucinations. It's uh, important he, to note they strap her face down onto the table. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they. This is one of those amazing uh, effects I was talking about, where they, where Coffin Joe supposedly carves off part of one of her buttocks and feeds it to her. And the, of course, the question the film leaves it kind of open, which I think is interesting as to whether he did that or not, or whether that was. A, an hallucination and the way they film it, you can have it either way. And I don't think it really matters. I will say that one of my disappointments, uh, one of my minor disappointments with the film is that that character doesn't play a larger role later on. She just kind of uh, fades into the background, sadly enough. Well, and that's kind of the interesting thing about it is I think they did that intentionally with the movie. You are supposed to forget about the women who quote unquote passed the test, but you actually see when they, pretty much past the test once they move on to the next thing whatever it's going to be that they're they're doing and at the end of the film they all kind of come back and then you kind of realize that what he's been doing this entire time is building almost like a stable like a breeding ground camp or something Mm -hmm. with all of them and so i think they in it's it's intentional for the women once they pass the test to you see it in his eyes where he gets like that horny i'm going to breed look even though it should be a you're perfect i can't wait to you know (laughs) for us to have sex it's more or less like he's just like we gonna breed now and that's it like that's all he cares about (laughs) (laughs) because he's just a man on a mission and so once what and he every single one of the women that pass that test they get this moment where he cocks his eyebrow up just enough and it's like this it's it's the coffin joe we gonna breed now face and once he shows that we gonna breed now face the women give the little smirk of, oh, yeah, we're going to breed now. And then it's over with and they're gone and you don't see them again. They don't come back and they don't really participate other than just being there as sort of set dressing in the background. And it's intentionally so. And I, I didn't realize that myself until watching it this time around while trying to keep down the snack that I was having, watching the woman get her ass sliced off and fed to her. <laughs> well, yeah, you are right that, you know, those that, that they're. As as he goes through the film and subjects these women to think women to you know different tortures and different uh, indignities to discover the ones that are worthy of you know carrying his seed essentially, they do immediately then fade away you know into the background. But as I said, I thought this one particular woman, uh, Doctor Hilda, I thought she would 
you know, I, it would have been pretty interesting to have her around because she is, you know, she's the only one who seems to, well, she's not the only one. There's one other who is a willing participant from Jump Street. She's, you know, almost as if she's, you know, been primed and ready for this for years. And now finally her opportunity has come. And I just, uh, there's a part of me that, that sees an alternate cup, uh, an alternate cut of this film with a couple of more scenes where the two of them are talking and they're kind of, you know, reaching heights of bizarre, you know, ecclesiastical ecstasy while discussing these concepts that they both hold so dear. And it just, I, I, I kind of wish that that existed, but at the same time, that would have made it, uh, you know, that would have made the reveal at the end less of a, of a, of a nice shock. So that's true. And also you have to remember, he's a man on a mission. He founds one, they go and breed. He's got to throw a baby in her and hopefully it'll stick. And he's got to move on to the next one because he's got very little time left, Rod. He doesn't have time I'm sorry, to espouse but... enough philosophical stuff. He's got to throw a baby in this perfect woman that meets his criteria. I'm, and just I'm go. sorry, the phrase the phrase "throw a baby" has just thrown me. Sorry. <laughs> well, throw a baby in him, but you know that's that's what he's all about. I mean, he, this isn't this isn't about his pleasure. This isn't about finding the perfect woman for him to spend his life with and make multiple kids. That time is over. He needs multiple women to throw multiple babies into. <laughs> O que faz uma moça sozinha aqui no escuro? Estou esperando minhas tias. As cegas, é claro. Hum, você está assustada. Deixa a menina em paz. Ora, se não são as velhas feiticeiras. Vocês têm uma bela sobrinha. Não toque nela. Ela está aqui para limpar uma obsessão. Não é uma obsessão. É apenas o meu destino. Cala a boca, menina. Zé do caixão. Nossos guias mandam um recado para a morte de capa preta. Você? São defuntos atormentados. Eles gritaram teu nome e juraram vingança. E não vão deixar você ter o que quer. Nós podemos fazer um trabalho para desmanchar o encosto. Mas você tem que ter fé. Você tem fé, Zé do Caixão? <risos> para o inferno. Vocês e suas mentiras. Cuidado. Podemos ajudar. Mas podemos também invocar tua desdita. Okay, let's talk about one of my favorite things in this movie, which is, okay, first of all, the technical level of this movie is to be blunt, far above the films produced in the 1960s. This is a much better looking, I mean, not just because it's in color. I mean, that's that's really kind of silly to even talk about in those terms. But the ability of Marins to marshal such a beautiful looking film while portraying such grim and hideous events is uh, it's something to behold and it's something absolutely wonderful. I also really like the way that he calls back to the previous films. You see the footage from the previous films, yes. but it's a flashback of almost his memory of things that have happened. And so he can tell you the story of like how he actually survived the swamp and all of that kind of stuff. But the way that they do it, anything that's coming from him from the past, his quote unquote ghosts of the past, even the people who are haunting him, they're all in black and white because the life, the thing that is so important to him has been drained from them. 
So it's almost like the movies that we were watching before, because they were in black and white, those stories had already passed. That time is already over. Even while we were watching it, that's not a true representation of what we were seeing. And even though the representation of hell becomes this full color, grandiose thing in This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse, the reason for that is because that was there, that was real and in the moment, and everything else just felt fleeting and unintentional and just not needed for him because it does, it's just it's in the past. It doesn't matter anymore. His life was just kind of going away. He has the child now kind of deal. And now this 40-year forced incarceration, and I get the feeling they just put him in a cell and left him, left him there. Like he was just left there to try and figure it out on his own. They didn't even let him out for anything. Like they fed him through the bars. They gave him some of his toiletries and supplies like from a stick with a distance <laughs> and didn't get anywhere near it, you know. Uh, you just get that feeling. And so like he's been so sort of refined and focused on everything and he's really felt that passing of time to where it's sharpened his mind. So the the look of this film feels to me as though for the last 40 years he has been nothing but razor focused on his goals. And so the look of the film, the reality crashing in on him just drags that all together where it's this it's it's the representation of the world his perception of the world is so much more vivid and crisp now because he realizes he has little time left you know and that's that's what it feels like to me anyway that that's why the film is produced that way and so crisp it's not just because they could afford it and it's not just because they could get whatever high definition technology to shoot it on video that would be even less than what they spent to shoot it on film when they initially did the other ones and it's not just the technology. It's almost like it became part of the storytelling that this is the new reality for Coffin Joe, and he is so razor focused. It is detailed to the nth degree on life, you know, like that, that kind of deal. I was just incredibly impressed how he folded all of the events of the previous two films into this one through these flashbacks and how he was able to recreate the, uh, the like the final set piece in the second film and uh, get that uh, get the, uh, the get the actor uh, Raymond Castile, the guy who uh, you know is is famous for you know going out of his way to kind of weirdly not I wouldn't say cosplay because he does it, it it's a it's a good deal more than that to be Coffin Joe in those recreated flashbacks that he blends so effectively with the previous film's footage so that we get the um, we get the you know the resurrection of him at the end where we, we when we thought he you know we thought the film ended in a certain way and we now see how he's recreated it to uh, set up this, <laughs> the, the character still being alive and also set up the, um, the desire for revenge of, of a couple of characters as he blinds one of them coming out of that swamp water with, uh, with his thumb. Yeah. We can talk about how brilliant having the characters in the color shots be in black and white as he hallucinates them. And that is absolutely amazing. And so creepy but those flashback recreations are incredibly flawless they fit so perfectly when they're blending the scenes from the actual older film with the newer footage it's incredible and of course it really helps a lot to have this this guy uh, Raymond Castile who does look so much like the younger version of Coffin Joe so that you don't have to do some kind of fakey weird thing you actually have an actor you can bring in to play the younger version of the character so that you're able to set all these things in place in a very believable cinematic way. It's so he, he got lucky on so many fronts 
first of all, having the ability to to have those characters he's hallucinating from his past be in black and white, which has at, at least a dual reasoning. One, yes, okay, the original films were in black and white, and so it's a distinct, a distinct callback to the visual look of the movies in the first place, but also, yes, as you said, them being something from his past and, and something that 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 is probably his vision of them at that time as well. There's so many elements just on the technical side where this film impresses me again and again and again. And um, the, it, it is also wonderful to see that he continues to carry through the idea that Coffin Joe is haunted by some doubts. There are still those things which he tries his best to hide from his cult followers and from the women that he is bringing along and impregnating as the movie progresses. He, he's, he's trying to hide his weaknesses from them. But the film is very clear that he still, you know, he still has some vestiges of guilt or some concerns about actions taken in the past that do continue to return to haunt him. And it get it gets to the point where, you know, even the people around him are aware that he is having, you know, he's having some kind of trouble processing things that are, are happening at times because of these things that are reoccurring in his, you know just in his mind it's it's wonderfully fascinating because the movie plays with so many different kinds of images and uh, we haven't even talked about his his attempt in this film to re-up or one-up himself I should say uh, in the category of that incredible color sequence in the second film the trip to hell sequence in here, which, you know, is just another trip inside the deranged mind of this character is another incredible set piece that it, it, it feels like something out of a Jodorowsky film. It's incredible. I also think that the hallucinations that he has this time around where he's having the flashbacks, I don't feel like this is a guilt attack. What I started thinking or feeling this time around watching it I almost wonder if, given the age of Coffin Joe and the fact that he was obviously malnourished and mistreated while in prison, perhaps something happened to where he has, like, not, I don't know, maybe Alzheimer's or dementia or something that has set in. And what it is, is he is actually confusing what reality he's living in in that moment and what time frame he's actually in. And those flashbacks are actually memories or brain triggering responses or just these weird dementia, like, ridden aspect of his brain just kind of misfiring and getting lost in time and just basically being transported back to when he did have the guilt when he did have those feelings and that's when those hallucinations hit him or also maybe he's just hallucinating because his mind is physically damaged and it's not working the way that it normally would and that's what i was kind of getting from it especially some of the visions where like his long lost love who was going to be giving him his child and we get the flashback of that and then she falls apart, and then the only thing that she gives him are spiders. <laughs> or, like, no, or, you know, she, not that's, that's a different wife that falls apart, but, like, he sees her yeah. um, dead and, and has that vision of her. Like, she never would have come back to haunt him. That's just him reliving that moment of losing her again. And then his original wife, whom he killed for not being able to give birth, and then he has this vision of her birthing spiders coming after him. Yeah. And, like, the, that all just felt like the same kind of, I don't want to say hallucinatory, but just like because his mind is not functioning, it's transporting him back to the past when he had those moments of guilt and everything like that. Because when he's out of that, he immediately goes, that wasn't real. He just knows right off the bat. Whereas before he has moments when he was experiencing the guilt where it takes him longer to shake it off. He shakes it off much quicker now to almost where he 
is reliving a moment in time and then he realizes that's not the time that I'm in now. I'm in this time. You know, this is my reality now. I don't know where that came from almost. And I wanted to talk too about the special effects. The the moment where his original wife who he murders for not being able to have children births the spiders and then the spiders start crawling on him but remain black and white. Yeah. They did this really interesting thing where when he interacts with someone who's supposed to be black and white, they would be painted and they would look black and white, but then he would also mask them and make them get the same sort of like shuddery, weird, uh, like 24 frames a second kind of look to their their the way that they're being displayed. So they would be flashing in a weird way. They'd have scratches going across them like his yeah. films would actually have. And it was very much like a visual cue to those films. And somehow they were able to mask the spiders crawling on him and do the same thing. And even though the masking didn't work 100%, what it ended up doing is giving you the same kind of visual idea of some of the special effects from the previous films to where you really are like, well, okay, these are literally the old, the past that is dead, still re reattacking him because of his diseased brain. And I really, I don't know, when I grabbed onto that concept, that made me really enjoy these hallucinatory sequences even more. And I think the vision of hell that he had this time around that you were kind of alluding to, and now I'd like to <laughs> move into that to talk about. <laughs> Go right ahead. He is actually seeing not so much what I feel is what his his particular punishment is going to be. What he is seeing is almost like a what everybody else perceives as a supernatural world of what's going to happen to them and what their punishment is going to be. But it's more or less him being told that he is right, that there is no purpose to everything else and all of this is nihilistic and he's seeing these visions. And it's more or less just like stuff that a sexual sadist would be into anyway. He doesn't seem all that particularly perturbed other than watching, you know, guys get their junk eaten off by women seem to really upset him for like a moment. But then he comes right back to it when he watches a woman literally get her mouth stitched for real on camera after her eye has obviously already been stitched. And I don't know how they did the eyeball like that, but that was disturbing. Well, I think the eyeballs had to be a uh, had to be a special effect. And that's why we don't see that part, that act being done. But we do see the lips. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope, Rodney. Oh, I certainly hope. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, that vision of hell, that surreal landscape that we we see all these depraved acts in, I do think that that is, I think I, I agree with you that this is him having a vision of uh, what other people's ver vision of hell would be. And yeah, I, I don't think that it's, it's something particularly horrifying to him. Except, as you said, in, in in one particular thing, in one particular act, and so there becomes this um, way of looking at that sequence um, as not a vision of him being afraid of the things that he's observing, but yeah, you're right, having a visual demonstration of a of all of these ideas that he has and their correctness. Uh, it's it's this you know feedback loop where he's creating this image in his own mind so that he can justify uh, his his outlook. And then, at, because I think right after he has this uh, hallucinatory vision of this surreal landscape with all this, all this, you know, the, the that incredible character, the old man who's uh, talking to him. And it's, and it's clearly, you know, this, this character is created in his own mind so that he can have this conversation with himself. And after that uh, hallucination is when he ramps things up even fat, even harder. I mean, things become much more uh, faster paced in what he's doing. He, uh, he quickly has, you know, more uh, more women kidnapped and things get, uh, you know, we, we get uh, a much um, 
choppier editing as we we're moving things to a climax because it's almost as if that vision was what he needed it's 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 almost him telling himself no you're right you're right everything that you're doing is right and correct you're on the correct path and this was a way for him to tell himself that yeah he's basically putting his own mind through the same test that he himself had been somewhat suffering where he knows that he is doing what he feels is the right thing for himself but the rest of the world is going to think that he's damned to hell and all of that kind of stuff and it's like he's shedding that last piece of guilt and regret of what it is that he's doing that he may or may not have been able to deal with over the 40 years because now he's actually doing the things that he's been planning and you're going to still have those moments of doubt and this is it's almost like the purifying fire that burns away that last moment of of self-hesitation to drive him even further to the end of the plot and he really seals his fate to make sure that he actually drives or his actual drive to get done what needs to be done is taken care of and he almost uses himself or sacrifices himself as a distraction technique because everyone is bound and determined to keep him from his ultimate goal but he's been finding a way to basically distract them from his ultimate goal by all of the excess of reaching that goal it's really quite brilliant the way that he does it's almost kaiser soze levels of planning that he had (laughs) well one thing not to uh, not to back up too far but as part of this entire seeking out of the of of a woman who can produce the continuity of his blood i do love that we once again in this film have at least one woman uh, actually we have a couple of them but that's not really revealed until later on um we have one woman who seems very much desirous of being that that part of his life of of being the person who is impregnated by him and that the the young gypsy woman uh elena my god what a strikingly beautiful woman and no uh, argument here <laughs> <laughs> she's she's astonishing and i think that um her her willingness to be part of this it, she's she's a part of two sequences in the movie that i think are amazing and in, in 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 a weaker film would be the standouts, but it's really kind of hard to like point to just those two sequences and say no 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 those are really standout sequences for various reasons. And the first is of course the sexual intercourse scene with her uh, about midway through the film, where the where the um, uh, he starts to have this hallucination of the dead bodies of the woman's aunts uh, because he's come in and killed the, the 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 young woman's aunts, and this does not dissuade her from wanting to be with him and he's strung the two bodies up overhead and so he starts to hallucinate that their dripping blood is is coming down upon their bodies as they as they copulate and it becomes this flood until the entire room is about a foot deep in blood and it's an insanely beautiful surreal crazed image uh, that swirls together so many ideas of this whole continuity of blood and the what it means to actually engage in the sex act itself, and it's it's an amazing thing. And that's that's the first set piece she's a part of, and the second set piece is at the very end of the film. Um, maybe we'll discuss that here in a moment. But <laughs> yeah, we should probably save it till we get to that that yeah. moment. Yeah. And also, to me, the hallucination that he's having is a shared hallucination where they're both being covered in blood while having sex yes, uh, yes. underneath the corpses. I, it's a shared hallucination, but what it represented to me was the ultimate achieving of the goal. Like, it's not just a hallucination. The continuity of blood is being achieved here for both of them. They're going 
to spawn. They're going to have the baby. And it's the ultimate goal because she has been sexually obsessed with how evil Coffin Joe is for so long. Her aunts even tried to perform an exorcism to get rid of that desire. They were trying to tell her, you will not go with Coffin Joe. You will find a man that we will pick for you that will be normal and you will have a normal child. You need to give up this obsession. And she's every bit as darkly obsessed of having the perfect child as what Coffin Joe is. Now, whether or not it was something that she did because she knew that Coffin Joe existed, or if it's just something that she's always felt all along as well, if maybe just this happened to be the perfect, you know, specimen for him to be able to get what he wanted. I don't know how that works. Like if she was influenced by him or if she was just all that way, you know, in the into that all the way herself until Joe just happened to stumble along and buy a mug of wine from her. How that works, I don't know. But to me, the shared hallucination is... The, the dual achievement of these mad minds creating what they are hoping to create and that they will in fact be able to make the perfect child and that this is the ultimate of all of the quote unquote perfect children that he's about to make or is attempting to make when we've seen him grab all of these other women. This one for sure is supposed to be the one that we as an audience is focusing on much like, uh, is it not Tanzanian's the one that he ended up killing Lara Laura's the one who was going to be like his perfect woman and he laments and really misses and wishes that he could have back. Yeah. And this is this is supposed to be this film's Laura. And I also believe that we're all like not even just as an audience, but like the people around him are supposed to be focused on her. Like she's the one that's going to be um, the one that's going to move on his child, because for whatever reason, everybody's just assuming there's only going to be one. You know, Highlander rules apply when it comes to Coffin Joe throwing babies into people. <laughs> You were good. You were going to work that phrase back into this conversation, no matter what you did, right? Once I know something works, I just keep hitting the button until you know <laughs> I get another laugh. That's. Have you not heard my show? We turn things into drops for oh, a reason. Of course. Well, I I I, I want to go ahead and advance toward the uh, to the final act because I want to discuss the fact that what eventually brings Coffin Joe down is not the modern world. It's not the 21st century. And I think that that is a pointed thing. Two levels. One, it is there is nothing within the 21st century that actually brings him down. What brings him down are specters from his past through the hallucinations that he keeps having, coupled with three individuals whose motivations to kill him all stem from the past. And I think that it's fascinating. Well, first of all, two of those characters uh, actually were written originally as one character and an unfortunate. Uh, unfortunately, one of the, one of the actors uh, passed away, and so they rewrote things so that they could keep that actor's performance in the movie and split the character into uh, into two, so that we have a pair of brothers: one who's a police captain whose uh, eye was uh, gouged out uh, by Coffin Joe at the end of the second film in our rewritten flashback scenes and the other is a uh, military man who is who is that character's brother and they both have uh, every desire in the world to bring this bastard down and the and the third character is a uh, man who is the son of one of coffin joe's victims from the previous movies who is now the doctor from what he said the main doctor who who knew what coffin joe was doing and was about to expose him in the original film and in this movie uh, the son has become a uh, a priest, uh, assuming it's a Catholic priest. No, 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 it is definitely a Catholic priest. And uh, kind of a monk-styled styled, um, priest who uh, definitely feels the vengeance he's, of the Lord within him. 
He is the complete inversion of everything Coffin Joe stands for. So much so that he tattoos what represents Coffin Joe on his chest is almost like a mark of this is the thing that I will destroy. He is grossly obsessed to the point where he is chastising his flesh in a religious manner, trying to, I don't know what he's doing. If he's just, when he's lighting up his nipples with the electricity, <laughs> if he's trying to destroy the tattoo that represents Coffin Joe, or if he's just trying to shock himself to torture himself, or he's trying to just run it through his heart. I, I don't know what it is he's trying to achieve other than some weird kinky sex thing that I'm like, I don't know how that box works, but I'm going to try it. Um, <laughs> Well, it, it is pretty clear. It, it's not triple underlined in the story or in the uh, the way the character plays it or the way the actor plays it, I should say. it's It seems to me that this is uh, probably the only uh, sexual outlet the, that the character has because we are talking about Catholics here. So he's, he's repressed his sexuality to such a degree because he has this drive to be yeah once you you know once you see that tattoo and his actions as he's you know as he's uh, flagellating himself this this becomes very clear that his one drive is to is to bring this criminal to you know to heal to to find a way to damn his soul to hell and to take vengeance for his father's murder and that's it it, it is of course perfect that it would be. Uh, that it would be a representation of the Catholic Church. We are talking, of course, about a film produced in Brazil where <laughs> Catholicism doth rule over all, regardless of what changes there have been in the governmental structure of that country over the past four decades. So, I'm curious if there actually are last rites that would allow for a priest to condemn someone to hell purposely, where where that that's what the prayer is. I wonder if that's something that is actually real or if it's just something that uh, Marins came up with as a as a means of vengeance for this character i mean there are rites of exorcism so wouldn't there possibly be a way to cast down a wicked soul to make sure that it doesn't get not necessarily salvation but like you know doesn't go into purgatory or something along those you know, lines the terrible thing is i of course have no knowledge of catholicism so i don't know if if there is such a thing that book that he holds up that he's you know reading that right from uh, is is uh it's a specific, it's a very specific Catholic book. It's not the Bible. He's pulling this from you know some uh, Catholic book that you know apparently has these types of things within it. So if it does exist, it wouldn't shock me. And if it doesn't exist, I'm I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> well, and I look at it this way too. Uh, this is just how I'm kind of picturing it. If a rite of that sort would exist. There is only one branch of Christianity I can possibly think of that would contain it, and that would have to be Catholicism. <laughs> it would make sense that they would have that. You I, know, I, yeah. Um, it's yeah. it's one of the oldest versions of Christianity, the the longest running versions of Christianity in its rites, its beliefs, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's not shocking that at some point in time that that would be created. And I'm not trying to disparage Catholics, but also it's a very mournful, very sorrowful way of worshiping and having faith so of course a damnation ritual would also logically extend from that too well, yes and you're right about catholicism i mean we're talking about a religion that stretches back centuries and so you know there have been a lot of changes over the centuries and so there the carryovers from past you know more shall we say arcane and simplistic ways of looking at the world 
would definitely be something that would either have to be rooted out, like uh, <clears throat> the occasional correction of of things from from the papal seat, where we suddenly decide, okay, look, all these things that we used to have in our in the way we do things, we we no longer do those. Um, and, you know, and it takes an encyclical, and they have to go through the whole process. And, and you know, there are things that I think just stick around. And, and of course, as is always true in any kind of gigantic system of this type, especially one built around belief system, there are always going to be those participants in it that think that excluding some past portion of it is heretical. And so you get this insane split, even when it's not necessarily a split that causes an actual new version of the church to be formed, but a split within the church where some people, you know, very quietly or sometimes openly, espouse that, well, we hang on to saying the Mass in Latin because that's the way it's supposed to be. Saying it in another language would be against God's will. And it's like, well, no, man, it's just that's the language it was originally done in, and and you want to hang on to it because that's the carryover from the past that makes you feel as if your religion has roots further back than, you know, humanity can normally hold on to. And so it makes it feel more real to you and it makes it feel more. And so there are all these things built within that, that makes it very easy, as you just said, for me to believe that there would be this right of damnation. So I kind of want to know if it really exists. And there's a part of me that goes, it doesn't matter if it really exists or not, because it's way too easy to believe that it does. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what makes it so brilliant. It's like this little level of, um, Catholic, like, Catholic um, mythology that he could have just added to, but it very well could have existed. You just don't know. And that's what makes it really kind of interesting and an idea. And I never really had that thought. It's only when we're kind of discussing it to where I'm like, well, I wonder if that is an actual thing. Whereas in the movie, whenever it happens, I'm like, that's totally a thing. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's talk. um, I'm hesitant to, I'm often hesitant when I know that a film that we're discussing isn't as uh, well-known and seen by as many people as I would like it to be. I'm a little hesitant to discuss the final sequences, and so I guess we kind of should dance around it because I do want to, you know, I I want our conversation about this movie to encourage people to see it without feeling as if that uh, the final act has been totally given away. What did you, I I will say, I'm going to try to be oblique in the discussion of this and not get too specific, but I will, I would ask, um, what did you think of the decision to have the uh, the final sequence, the the final uh, uh, comeuppance of Coffin Joe in this film take place in an amusement park. What I really found funny about it is I f- thought that he was actually going back to not necessarily the scene of a crime, but it felt like he was going back to the swamp or cemetery that was like his undoing before in the past. And I kind of wondered if that's what they were kind of getting at, that this has been developed into the amusement park now, and that's just where he's going. This is just kind of like the place that he flees to. Um, and the way that the final comeuppance or whatever you want to call it ends up taking place actually really works for me because as I was talking before, I feel like when coffin Joe goes to do the things that he's doing in the amusement park, he is essentially sacrificing himself to protect the goal because this is very different from the other films. We can at least say this without spoiling a whole lot. He achieves his goal. He creates the continuity of bloodline. That's what that one sequence represents and we're all we all know that that's the case and so when he's running and he's running away he is trying to draw them away from you know his ultimate goal that he has already knows that he has succeeded and so he is literally sacrificing himself 
And I think the amusement park part of it, because carnivals represent evil, they represent all the things that are the inversion of Christianity and all the stuff that Coffin Joe is fighting against, it is perfection for him to be there. It's exactly what it needs to be. This is when he knows for sure that he has won, regardless of what happens here. And now we get a return of the Coffin Joe who is reveling in his own wickedness and having fun with what he's doing. He is enjoying the work that he is having here, even as he may be losing, he still very much knows that he's won. You know, he's losing himself, but he has yes. also won his ultimate goal and his continuity of his blood will continue. And that's what makes this film that much more interesting. And when we do finally get the final reveal of just how well he, he has done for continuing his bloodline, which I agree, I, I don't think we should really go too much into, that extra coda of stuff that they put in at the end of the film is just absolutely brilliant. And do we want to talk about his ultimate fate because it doesn't really spoil the whole review and also that is that one sequence you wanted to talk about with uh the the main girl that was in the blood line thing again well i do i yeah the, i, I kind of want to dance delicately around this but it, yeah i do think it's impressive that at a point in the film where we think because he kind of has to be we think coffin joe is dead we won't say how but like he uh, is he's actually yeah. become the victim of one of the people who thinks that they have vanquished him and he's just laying there when we're assuming he's dead <laughs> and we're assuming he's dead because well every outside indication is that he certainly has snuffed the it. film even shows and you the various come... organs that were damaged that may have killed him repeatedly <laughs> yeah and then what we have is elena the, the 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 woman who he had the dual you know the hallucination with the blood room hallucination with earlier the gypsy girl uh, she shows up, disrobes, and somehow manages to have sexual intercourse with his corpse. This night she shall possess his corpse. Right. And <laughs> it's very it's it's in a film packed with hallucinatory imagery and uh, surreal landscapes and bizarre ideas and well just let's just say images that you're not going to find outside the realm of high-flying horror filmmaking in general. These are the kinds of things that only crop up in this type of cinema. And to see something, this is not portrayed in... This is portrayed realistically. In other words, there are no bizarre changes to the image. There's no color saturation or desaturation. There's nothing of that type. This is just presented as something that is occurring, as if you were watching this act taking place between two characters, one of you know that that were alive, as far as you were aware. And it is, it is the perfect, you know, shall we say, jab to the head with the next scene being the uppercut that lays you on your back. Uh, and that's the, the uppercut is the scene we won't quite discuss, but I found it to be a brilliant, a brilliant thing where I expected him to be able to end this well, because he, he's all, he's always ended these movies. Well, they always have a punch at the end. I did not expect this. I won't call it a sucker punch because you should have been aware that he was setting you up for this. But he's done through clever film, through clever filmmaking, and smart scripting. He has made sure that you're not expecting those those final two reveals, and it's just it, it's a it's a joy to have a filmmaker be able to pull something like this off in a film that is is it, it so wallows in 
grime and filth and nihilism and cruelty and vicious actions and to have that kind of of uh, clever subtle filmmaking still be able to push you down and you know instead of you know punch you down is really effective they build on it really well they develop it really well they do not telegraph it in any way shape or form and the necrophilic act that may or may not be something that is actually working I don't know if that is just her having one last go at the man that she was, you know, desperate to continue her bloodline with. And that is her hallucination of him coming back to life for that brief Mm -hmm. moment. Or if perhaps the injury that he had is not really killing him yet and his hate is keeping him alive. So he's trying one last time. And I love the idea that um, even though we've seen them have sex before and we're not 100 percent sure if that was a hallucination or not, if it just represented him finding the perfect one. I kind of wonder if maybe this act was something that actually was like his final act as he's dying and he's bleeding out or whatever it is, is to throw one last baby into her (laughs) kind of deal. And and so when that takes place, it's like this weird version of like half necrophilia, half sex scene to make it to where it's actually happening. And you think he's dead, like from the start. And so like the idea too, initially necrophilia was a thought that they could bring people back to life by giving them an act of life. And that was something the ancient Egyptians, I think, practiced at some point where they thought that necrophilia would, could possibly bring life back to a person. And so it's bringing in this little hint of that idea that that's what's happening, where she's almost reviving him. And you don't know if she's going to be reviving him for real or not until the final reveal of the film. But that moment is just like this wonderful coda. And I like the way you described it. It is almost like a jab but it's more like the entire time he's been playing rope-a-dope with everyone around him as Coffin Joe, and he's just basically been taking the punches and doing what he needs to do to to keep achieving his goal, and he's let the rest of the world punch itself out. And then finally we get that that one jab which sets up the chin just right. <laughs> and instead of instead of the haymaker, we get or instead of an uppercut, I think it's more of a straight up haymaker that just comes out of nowhere that you had no idea was going to happen. And it spins you right round and puts you down on the mat and 10 count you're out end of film. And it's, and it's beautifully done. I, I will say we've talked about how uh, none of these films are more than about 90 minutes. And the official, the official running time on this movie is 93 minutes, but honestly the credits start at about, I think the 83 minute or 84 minute mark, which means that that, you know, that's the effective end of the movie. The credit, it's a long credit sequence. Uh, at the end, that brings the runtime up to ninety-three minutes. Think about how tight that movie is. Yeah, I, they, it's yeah. like four movies in like eighty-four minutes. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's tight. It tells its story very well with a lot of with a lot of skill and flourish. There, I mean, you know, honestly, there's a lot of style in this movie, and sometimes the style does make some sequences, you know, longer than they would be if you were just telling if you were just getting this information across in a more simplistic way. But my God, it's just, it moves, it moves along very well. And I was, uh, when I, when I sat down to rewatch this, I was like, okay, yeah, right. 93 minutes. And then when the credit started, I looked at the time and went, wow, this movie's, this movie's sharper and more to the point than I remembered it being, because that's a long credit sequence, man. (laughs) Well, it's really interesting the way that the, and the opening credits are kind of similar as well, but the opening credits kind of give you the, the history, like through the dialogue as the opening credits are happening. The film, the film just hits the ground running, and then as it leaves the ground and takes off and soars and leaves you behind at Earth, just kind of, what? Oh, 
Oh, oh no. <laughs> yes, like it's, it's, it's the most hollow, like nihilistic way to end a film. But at the same time, you kind of get the result where you're like, well, that was the point all along, wasn't it? Yep. Exactly. <laughs> like it just, it seems like such a hollow thing and such a, such a false victory for the character of Coffin Joe, but it is literally him getting everything he has ever wanted regardless of what has happened so he has achieved his goal even though it took him 40 years of a prison sentence to plan it out and to refine it and realize that he was his own worst enemy and really the thing that was ultimately getting in his way i couldn't put it better you just it's like you just read off my notes well done (laughs) well you know some of us kind of share our brain with this sort of thing so (laughs) okay well i will say um the the synapse blu-ray of this is of course a thing of beauty but the most surrealistic thing about watching this movie to me, I mean, seriously, the most surrealistic thing about embodiment of evil is that the film starts with the 20th century Fox logo, right? Like what the fuck? Is that just something that happened in Brazil where they got the money from them? Like what? How? I, I, they distributed the film. It was an independently produced movie and 20th century Fox picked it up and distributed it. I had forgotten that that's how that 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 was true. And so when I sat down this time to rewatch this movie for the first time in several years, I sat there and went, oh, holy shit, did I put the wrong disc in? Yeah, same. Exactly. Same thing. It, it happened to me when I was watching it last night. I'm like, wait, what? It, that, something wrong? <laughs> it, and like I said, I just said it is surrealistic and bizarre, but in a weird way and in a way that could not have been foreseen while making the picture. It's a perfect setup to just dis- kind of discombobulate you, to kind of set you back on your heels and go, "Hey, wait, just a- wait a minute. Oh, oh no, no, this is the movie. Yeah, okay, hold on. All right, yeah, good. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. But it, it, it sets you, it, it wrong foots you right at the beginning. Yeah, it sets you back for just a moment where you're just off just for a second, and then when you get brought into the film and you realize, yeah, no, this is correct. That's that's definitely Brazilian Portuguese, and that's definitely some Coffin Joe looking credits. So this is the right disc. But how the fuck did this happen? Oh, well, time to just just buy in and go. Okay, so um, just now that we're wrapping this up, just out of curiosity. So in my way of thinking, this is one of the best horror trilogies of all time, if not the best. There are so few horror trilogies that you can point to in the first place. I mean, you kind of have to be you have to be aware when you're talking about horror movies, you're not really often talking about trilogies. You're talking about series. You're talking about, you know franchises yeah and so what you have here is although this character was of course uh in other movies um he uses the character in other movies it's only in these three movies that he's telling the story of coffin joe and so this is uh, an impressive accomplishment spread across you know 45 plus you know 45 years uh and it is an incredible achievement and um now I have to ask the the rather difficult question because it is it's almost impossible for me. Of the three movies, which is your favorite? I'm still the biggest one that I go to and I love the most is This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse. Um, okay. It is the one that just really kind of rattled me to my core more than the other ones. While I love Embodiment of Evil, I think it delves a little too much into the time frame that it was made in of making it a little more of what people misnome as torture porn where it just really indulges in the torture aspect and the body the extreme, mutilations the extreme horror the yeah. extreme horror end of things yeah yeah it delves a little too much into the extreme horror ends of things and it it, it really kind of is off-putting in a way to where 
it's like, okay, well, where's your plot line? But he sneaks it in. He sideloads it on you to where you don't realize it till the end. So, and I always etch a sketch the fact that the the, the sneaky shit that I was were talking about and like really kind of reveling in and enjoying. Um, I always etch a sketch that out because the the it's like the brilliant trick that we're talking about. You know, the the whole like the the devil convinces you he doesn't exist. This film convinces me that it doesn't end the way that it does. And so my memory of it is always, oh yeah, well this night I'll possess your corpse is, is still my favorite. It's still you know, it gets the ultimate goal. But like with Embodiment of Evil, you're like, oh, yeah, no, he does get the goal. He does win kind of in his way. Kind of. Yeah. But it's like it's just I don't know. It's like the nihilistic, really, really empty, hate filled, excessive torture stuff of this film kind of drags it down for me. So if you're going to want to watch a Coffin Joe movie while we're hanging out, I'm going to try and steer you towards this night. I'll possess your corpse. Although I totally understand why somebody would feel this is a better made film because it certainly is. It's just for me, enjoyment wise, this night I'll possess your corpse is like the pinnacle for me to enjoy this film embodiment of evil. This is not easy to get through. This is a painful movie to watch, but it does deliver on the goods in multiple ways. Strangely enough, I kind of agree with you. While I feel the embodiment of evil is the best made of the three. Yeah, it there there is enough. There's enough in embodiment of evil that I find off putting that. Returning to the movie, yeah, I do kind of mentally edit out the bits and pieces of, of scenes that I think are over-the-top and unnecessary. And um, they work within the context of the movie, and they do make you uncomfortable, which is something that, you know, Marins was always striving to do within these movies. He was always trying to make his audience uncomfortable. He was trying to push those buttons, and he succeeds, uh, most effectively with Embodiment of Evil, I think, because it is the more modern film. And of course, we're coming to these movies, you know, in the past 25 years. So obviously something made in the 60s is not going to have the punch for us. You know, something made before we were born, it's just not going to have as much punch as something that's made when we're alive and is, is reacting specifically to the way cinema is set up and, and reacting to the world around it as we speak. So while I think embodiment of evil might be the best is it might be the best made, certainly technically the best made Um, in a way I kind of, I do kind of fall with the second one as being the one that I will go back to more frequently. Um, I do think it's interesting. Um, This is the first, this is the first time that Marins has made a movie embodiment of evil is the first movie he made where he uh, made it with sync sound because all the, all his previous movies he shot, you know, silent and then dubbed everything in after the fact. And, and, and what's interesting is uh, that was a problem during production because that means he actually had to enunciate properly while doing dialogue. And it became a bit <laughs> of a problem where he was of, often having to have someone listening carefully and then taking the director's chair while he was on screen and having him back up and restate dialogue because he would leave the S off. He wouldn't pronounce the S on a plural word distinctly enough for it to be caught and things of that nature. And he, you could see him in some behind the scenes footage kind of getting frustrated with, you know, shooting with sound. And, uh, I thought, I thought that was kind of fascinating because he's making the leap into the 21st century way of doing things, which really isn't, I mean, that part of it really isn't that much of a leap into the 21st century for God's sake, but it is an old dog. It is for yeah. him considering how limited his stuff was yeah. at the time. It's, a, it's, it's an old dog being forced to learn new tricks and, occasionally complaining about it and uh, only having him, you know, really kind of only having himself to complain to (laughs) 
but <laughs> yeah, because these young whippersnappers have no idea because it's just built into the cameras now. Yeah. And so he's a, he's a he's a part of the way things that it, his vision of this get, and getting it in there just the 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 things that he got used to made it even more difficult for him, which I think makes the accomplishment of embodiment of evil all the more impressive. But there's there's something he man you know there, there's a a ramshackle quality to the first film that is also present in this night I'll, I'll possess your corpse I'll admit but it's more refined he's gotten you know he's had a few more years to gather his uh, you know his technical abilities into a tighter ball and he's he, it, I think in that film and in the movies he made in the you know directly after that and in the seventies you see a man who's who's getting technically more and more proficient. And by the time of Embodiment of Evil, he has such a great cast and uh, and crew around him that he's really working at the top of his game. But you're right. It does have, while completely appropriate to the story being told, it is those, those uh, more extreme horror elements that make it less of an enjoyable thing to go back to. Uh, the big stretches of it where that stuff is not present are just as joyful for me as those first two movies. And that is a really strange term to use for these movies. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I kind of fall in that range as well. I kind of like rewatching the first two movies more than the last one, even though the last one, God, what a great ending. And so much of it is so good. And it is such a well done movie. And I don't want to say that it goes overindulgent. It's not like um, it's not like an intentional like French extremity, like how much stuff can you stand before you throw up style of extreme horror it's just reveling in its own misery for there's like a sequence of the film that's like a good 10 minutes <laughs> of him like kidnapping and training women to you know torturing women i should say although in his mind he's training them to be more of what he needs for you know the continuity of the bloodline and it goes for about 10 minutes of just these insane torture sequences and then him basically like at the last portion of that like the last like two to five minutes of that that sequence is literally just him settling all of his grudges and making sure that he kills off everybody who has wronged him in this film and in previous ones that may still be around that he hasn't dealt with in some of the most horrific ways imaginable. And so some and sometimes as well, like some of the women that he has trained are also not only assisting him with this, but also pushing him to go even further to where they're like, oh, you think that's great? Now we're going to smother this woman with cheese and shove a rat in her vagina. And that's how she's going to die. <laughs> it's just really horrific yeah. shit like that. And there's just, it's moments of the film where you're like, Jesus, Marins, what the fuck? <laughs> well, I do think as we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, that sometimes it's a good idea. I mean, here, this is the film that he was able to make without worrying about censorship. And it is unfortunate that, him reveling in the ability to put anything he wants on screen results in the stuff that kind of makes us feel as if the film is less fun to return to. Uh, and so I'm not arguing for censorship by any stretch of the imagination, but I am arguing that once again, it is the restrictions placed on a, a filmmaker or a creative person in general that makes that that sometimes makes the art more timeless or more more able to strike its goal strike its target without without sloppiness let's put it that way because i feel that having absolutely no restrictions is the reason why there are things in this movie that we regret are there you know and i don't want to make it sound like i regret that they're there it's more that i have a hard time 
getting through those moments because it's such it just gets it just keeps compounding and compounding and it's right. like right. it's so different from the tone of the rest of the film to where i just feel like if those things weren't there it wouldn't really hurt the film in any way shape or form and it does it just definitely feels like a filmmaker who has been shackled his entire life allowed to just run free and it works for this type of film because the character of coffin joe has been shackled for his entire life and finally allowed to roam free and so yeah. i i believe that he would have that excess in his cruelty but also the excess of cruelty is something that's not always fun to watch and this manner of the film it purposely drives it home and makes it so realistic and so straightforward with its cruelty that you literally are just like wow you are just fucking going there and it, it does it makes it kind of a harder watch so it's not one that i would return to relatively often although the overall film is quite satisfying in its nihilistic emptiness and excess <laughs> satisfying in its in its emptiness <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean it's i don't know uh, the, the, I agree, I agree with exa- I agree with what you just said. It's just that unfortunately I have to now reflect on that and realize what that means. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, Court, once again, uh, now that we're wrapping this up, I'd like to thank you once again for indulging me in this uh, this coffin Joe roundtable of uh, well of just two of us really. No one else is invited. Stay away. Um, so by Coffin Joe Roundtable, what you're really saying is my dinner with Court Psyops over <laughs> Coffin Joe. <laughs> that's what these conversations yes, have been. Yes. You know, melted cheese and, and rat vaginas. So yeah. <laughs> that's the name of my next band, coincidentally. <laughs> oh my god. Now I'm just picturing some hideous fast food restaurant version of this as a dish okay let me let me move on from that before it becomes something i can't stop thinking about so <laughs> court tell the good people out there in bloody pit land about your own podcast where they can hear this kind of insane bullshit every week <laughs> with a much more immature co-host than yourself rod i don't know if people would believe that but it is possible <laughs> it is possible <laughs> yes uh cinema psyops is available wherever wonderful podcasts are given away for free uh easiest place to find it <laughs> legionpodcast.com forward slash cinema dash psyops if you just do a google search for cinema psyops including misspelling they find us now we are now like Good. like one of the main hits whenever you search cinema psyops our, our podcast shows up uh we've got over five years now uh we're we're working on our fifth year right now we're about two episodes in and we finally reached the point where we're talking full on straight up adult film. <laughs> we finally Ooh. we finally gotten there and things are uh, fun and uncomfortable all at once. Uh, one of our listeners basically had heard us talking about and toying around with some of the ideas of some of the films. And we actually did a review of films from a director who started off in pornographic movies and then went on to do horror. We did some of their horror films. And I was intrigued at what their actual pornographic films would be like. And the next thing I know, our listener-supported episodes happened with our listener, Robert, who just decided to fund the show for five or six weeks of episodes by buying the Blu-rays <laughs> that we're going to cover. And uh, oh my. his choices have been – I'm not going not gonna to mince words on this. Choices have been incredible. He's really kind of given us some really fun material to discuss and some really interesting films. And we're kind of digging into the history and uh, – He's helping us kind of correct us for things that, I mean, both Matt and myself are not historians when it comes to pornography. Most of our study consists of about four to five minutes of a time and whatever just happens to be in front of us at the moment. So, 
really? I would. I, I can't understand that. How does? Oh, okay, well, hold on a minute. I think I get it now. <laughs> but anyway, because of this, the show has kind of evolved a little bit um, in in that aspect for our year five. But uh, it seems like everybody's on board, so it's been great. And uh, I'm actually while we're discussing Coffin Joe, I've been ripping the movies for this year. I'm trying to get them all ready to go for the files for Matt to have. So. I'm trying to get like an entire lineup of films so where we're just going to literally go full bore movie stack Jenga where it's literally everything <laughs> is ready to go and we just keep slugging through it as much as possible. So that's that's the the new and exciting horizon for us there um, trying to really just dig in and just whatever DVD or Blu-ray that I may have bought that I haven't necessarily watched yet or we just haven't done on the show. Um, we're just going to start there and we're just going to go. So it's going to be some weird territory for sure. <laughs> and I well, I just I just have to once again tell you how impressed I am by anybody who can get a podcast out every single week. <laughs> well, it's uh, that OCD drive, you know. Um, <laughs> it really helps. I, I've kind of shifted a lot of the review onto Matt, and I focus in on the editing and the production side of the show more. And by doing that, it also makes it really fun because he has to describe things that make him extremely uncomfortable. So my own little coffin Joe, empty nihilistic joy of torturing someone gets to be achieved every week when Matt has to do the notes and talk about things that make him that uncomfortable. <laughs> that's Oh God. Needling Matt. That, that, that just seems to be, that's actually the, the subplot of every episode. How can I make Matt uncomfortable? What's best about that is now the listeners are getting in on that because some of the choices Robert made for uh, his listener support shows were things because he couldn't wait to see how uncomfortable it would make Matt. <laughs> That's great. That's well, I mean, it's great in a certain sense, if you know what I mean. It's great for everyone but Matt, let's be honest. Correct. Correct. <laughs> luckily, I luckily I don't think he'll ever listen to this, so he'll never know how we're how we're taking great joy as a as a team kind of behind his back. I, I think he just suspects it. Well, yeah, he knows. He knows everybody's out to get him or at least that's what his paranoia tells him. <laughs> and you're right. He won't listen to anything he's not on. <laughs> Which is which is hilarious. Uh, well, Court, once again, thank you for being on the show. Um, we're going to have to find another topic to uh, to tackle. Well, I still I think we should take a little bit of a break and then we should go through the rest of Coffin Joe's films eventually. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. I think I think we should do those. Actually, I just want to suggest that we just kind of do them in the order that they were created. And we just go through his filmography piece by piece. But it wouldn't be a bad idea to come back on and just do something like a palate cleanser before we dig into that. That's not a bad idea. We'll have to put our heads together and kind of figure that out. But okay. not too hard because then we'll have that Three Stooges knock and we go, ow! We kind of have that anyway. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Through, through, the, <laughs> through the Skype wiring. <laughs> Court oh, it's, it's a total blast. Thank you so much for allowing me to do this. It's one of my um, more desired uh, series to talk about with Coffin Joe, and I was so excited whenever I got this opportunity. So I'm glad that we were able to close that out many years later <laughs> <laughs> has it been that long oh my god it feels like it it feels really like it does doesn't it thank you once again court oh no i again thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this journey on the bloody pit all right man we'll talk to you again soon go throw a baby <laughs> no baby circle slash baby <laughs>